Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the book of Haggai. Book of Haggai. Depending on how big your Bible is, uh, it should just be one page or two pages back to back. Uh, today is actually a two-chapter book. Uh, so there's no Bible Project video. I think we can do this one justice. Uh, in fact, it's a fantastic two chapters. And, you know, again, I find myself with five pages printed out. I'm like, how did this happen? I don't know. Um, but um, I trust the Lord will uh, lead us through this. You know, with these two chapters, uh, it can take you about six minutes to read. Okay, so if you want to, like, you know, go through this week and say, oh, I read a whole book of the Bible, Haggai is a good one to boost your, to boost your morale. Like, wow, I read a whole book of the Bible. Yeah, six minutes if you read it kind of average pace. Um, and so I think, you know, if we read every verse in the book of Haggai tonight, and I have a 29-minute service, we're still down for 35 minutes, people. So let's see how that goes. Uh, so let's just jump in. Haggai chapter 1. And uh, I don't know if you, if you uh, I know you're standing in for Liam to how to find that uh, Bible verse uh, there. If you can, just uh, you know, open up the Bible uh, tab there and type Haggai. Uh, and I think we can just click through all the verses and uh, you can follow along with me on screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. But if you do, nothing like holding the pieces of paper in your hand. Okay, so chapter 1, uh, we'll read and stop and read and stop uh, and see how this goes. <clears throat> Before I read, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence. Thank you so much for the privilege of calling you our dad, our father. We, get, we got to sing that reality. And so I, I pray that tonight the father's heart would really come through as I, as I teach uh, these verses. Holy Spirit, we need you to open our eyes and to soften our hearts, to respond to you uh, and to be changed. And so we are dependent upon you entirely myself and on the listeners we all invite you into this moment to speak to us uh, for the sake of your son and the glory of his name we pray amen all right chapter 1 verse 1 in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, before we, um, before we continue reading, just maybe a bit of a backstory there. You see the second year of King Darius. Now, this takes place, this is all about rebuilding the temple. This is the, this is the subject matter, really, in the book of Haggai. And uh, remember, we've preached through Nehemiah before, and Nehemiah was all about rebuilding the walls. But the temple was the first step. So this actually happened before the book of Nehemiah. And I know we have not been preaching through these books in chronological order. We've been teaching through them in the biblical way they've been laid out. So just so you know where this sits. Um, and uh, Haggai is one of the returned exiles. So for a while, we've had a couple of books reminding us that, you know, the prophets are yelling at the Israel saying, stop sinning, you're going to be exiled. And eventually, you know, the northern kingdom was taken by the Assyrians. And then, the, you know, the Babylonians took over and then they took the southern kingdom out. Okay. And when this happens, actually 70 years later, the promise was fulfilled. They came back to uh, Judah, to the southern kingdom, and, and they're in Jerusalem, some of them. And, uh, and Haggai is among those exiles that are coming back. But the interesting thing is, the Babylonians now have been taken over by the Persians, okay? And so at this, this, this Darius over here is kind of a second or a third king down the line since they've taken over. And he in particular gave some favor to the Jews, to the Israelites, in terms of 
having, not just going back, but being able to rebuild the temple. He gave them quite a bit of favor as well. Like there was this edict in 538 BC that permitted them to come back. And then um, as they started working, just like with Nehemiah, uh, some opposition arose. Okay, um, and, uh, and that's actually where... Um, uh, or at the end of that, you know, um, Haggai and also the prophet Zechariah, which is what Brian, he will preach that book next week. They were co contemporaries. They kind of prophesied at the same time. Um, and the main message, certainly in Haggai, is for them to stop focusing on their own economic and comforts, their economic well-being, and just to finish the temple. Okay, that's the kind of just, this, this, is, this is the primary message that's coming through the book of Haggai. And I think it's pretty relevant uh, uh, to our day as well, because so often we find ourselves, you know, putting the things of God second in our lives, and we focus on us mostly. And and in their, it looks a certain way in our day, but in their day, for their society and for their people, rebuilding the temple was a way of showing the world and the surrounding people that they are in fact putting God first. Now, of course, I, don't, I want this to be a legalistic sermon where you know, this is all about you know, doing the right things because we, we, ha we have the, the rest of the New Testament. We're almost there. We're nearly done with the series. Um, and uh, a more gospel-centered view, of course, as we read this, knowing that Jesus, ultimately, he declared he's the, the temple. You know, he's the, the, the new meeting place of God. And, uh, and his kingdom that he's building is the new priority. And so in many ways, Haggai is like an older version of Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Hey man, why do you worry about what you wear and what you drink and what you, know, what you eat? He's like, seek the kingdom of God first, because those things are good, but they're not best. If you seek God's kingdom first, these things will be added to you. And that's, that's kind of like an, Haggai is an old version of that, saying, you know, you don't stop worrying about your own homes and your own economic well-being. I know you're back in the land. I know you want to make money. You want to hustle. You want to make it work. But actually, my temple's still in ruin. Yeah, and, 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 and you're forgetting about it. So we'll, we'll read some of those words verbatim in a, mo in a moment. So let's carry on reading verse 2. Right, verse chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord coming through Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then uh, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And <laughs> the Lord of holes. Yeah, he is the Lord of holes as well. But... Um, <laughs> But it's written here, hosts. I'm going to read that. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth. O man and beast, 
and on all their labors. Let's just stop there for a moment. What's going on? Uh, they all are saying it's not the time. It's not the time for us to do it right now. They're basically just making excuses. It reminds me of Luke chapter 14, where Jesus talks about this great banquet, you know, and says, invite people, and then everybody makes excuses. They're like, no, I just bought a field. I can't come right now. And someone's like, I just bought an oxen. You know, maybe it's the modern. I just got myself a Mustang. I can't go right now, you know. <laughs> got to set, set it up. I don't know. I just bought a, you know, three-bedroom, uh, semi-detached house. Uh, I don't know, you know, sold my soul to get a, get a mortgage. Like, uh, you know, that's kind of the, 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 the modern day equivalent. They're just making excuses. Not now, Lord, not now. Someone says, I just got married. You know, basically saying, no, I've got this boyfriend, this girlfriend, I've got this fiance, but this relationship, like, got, not now. Like, I've got, I've, got to, I've got to focus on this. That's really what they are doing. And God is responding, saying to them, no, your, your priorities have shifted. Something is wrong here, and it's amazing. There's so much individualism uh, that I can read in, 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 in God's response to them, saying, you say it's, it's not the time, but it's the time for your own paneled houses. Verse 9 says, each of you busies himself with his own stuff. And there's so much, there's so much of our society today. That's why it's such a relevant book. Uh, you know, it's just all about me and my needs, the self, and uh, no longer concerned for the things of God. In fact, God's things gets in the way of our things, and we don't want that. And initially for, for, um, for, for the people, the, the reason was opposition, okay? They initially came back pumped, let's do, the, let's, do, let's do this thing, let's rebuild the temple. And then there was some opposition, and so they stopped. You can read that in Ezra chapter 4, uh, verse 4 to 5 if you want to. But unfortunately, an end in construction ended up in an end in caring for them. That's sometimes what happens. It's like there's good reasons for us to maybe take a step back. There is some real opposition. It's tough. It's difficult. But then we stay in that place. And then an, an end of construction, or actually the way I wrote it here is they, they moved from like, uh, I no longer have to, or, or um, we, we, you know, we had to build the temple to, I don't want to build the temple anymore. Okay? They ended caring about God's things because initially there was an end in construction. And could it be that we ourselves find ourselves uh, often growing apathetic um, and comfortable in no longer pursuing the Lord and putting Him first, um, firstly as a result of just circumstances, you know, like in their case it was opposition. And, uh, and then eventually we find ourselves just forgetting about God altogether. And verses 5 to 11 um, that we, uh, we read here, actually describes their current state, that actually they are living in a kind of consequence of their actions. And again, I want to double-click on Matthew chapter 6, when the Lord said to you know, the, his listeners, Jesus said to his listeners, um, don't be anxious about these things. You know, don't worry about the, these things. Actually put God's kingdom first, and those things will be taken care of. What he's saying is if you don't put God's kingdom first, actually a worry and an anxiety about those things do take over. The consequences of you focusing on yourself is that you, you actually, you're insecure. Like, am I good enough? Am I, you know, am I clever enough? Um, am, I, am, I, am I strong enough? But actually, if you put God first, it actually removes some of that anxiety because the answer is God is good enough. He's strong enough. He's clever enough. He's a, he's a good father. And so they are living in a kind of consequence of their actions. The way he, the Lord describes it over here, you know, as he, as, he, uh, as he uses language like, you know, your pockets have holes in you know, it's like you work really hard and there's still not enough money, you know. 
Sometimes we can feel like that. Man, I'm just, I'm working so hard and I'm, you know, there's more months left at the end of my money than there is money at the end of my month, you know. And, uh, and they, of course, it, it has to do here with the produce, like, you know, uh, what they eat and what they wear and all of those kinds of things. And, and God is saying to them, consider your ways. And, and it's the word to us. Consider our ways. And uh, he uses that metaphor, I've already said, about, you know, holes in their pockets. The point he's trying to make is that when we focus on ourselves and we make ourselves first and we don't make the Lord first, is that it, act, we actually never truly deliver. We, we always come short. We always find ourselves dissatisfied. It does not satisfy uh, when we make ourselves the focus. Let me see if I can fast forward here a little bit, you know. And so the Lord says stuff like verse 9. He said, I blew it away. And verse 10 to 11, he says, I called for a drought. You know, this is the sovereign God uh, basically saying, I'm not going to leave you in this apathy, in this comfortable state of prioritizing yourself and, and forgetting about me, the Lord, and my, my temple. And uh, I, I love the fact that he, he, he intervenes to that extent because he's basically uh, turning these things on us, these things that we trust in. He's turning it on them. It's like, you know, it's, it's kind of like the curse, you know, that happened in, in, in the beginning. Where it's like you work and the sweat of your brow, uh, by the sweat of your brow you'll work and the, thorn, the, the, the ground will produce thorns and thistles. He, he turns the things that, that uh, on themselves so that he could turn us back to him. Again, last week Ryan talked about, you know, being uh, uh, jolted out of our complacency. Um, and he's using his sovereign uh, control of the elements that 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 you know there's a drought that that their hard work produces very little he's saying i want you to show to show you that if you put your faith in those things ultimately in yourself it's not going to happen for you so he's chastening them is actually him chasing after them this is the thing there's god's grace in him withholding withholding blessings so that his chastening of them uh, is actually ultimately he's chasing after them because when we run from God, the gospel tells us God runs to us. That's how he responds to our rebellion. And of course, this is all about them prioritizing the temple. Why is the temple so important? What is up with this place, this building? Give me a second. Well, the temple was used for two, two things. It was a place where they would sacrifice for sin. And it was a dwelling place for the glory of God. Uh, in the Old Testament, God was still very happy for His glory to be manifested geographically in a specific place in a specific time. Um, and so those two things is what the temple is for. And if they neglect rebuilding this temple, they basically are demonstrating as a people that they are indifferent to their own sin. If the temple is a place where we, where we sacrifice or where they sacrifice for their sins. And they are indifferent to the Lord's presence. Because the temple is a place where the presence of God comes and so, that, you know, God is wanting that temple for those very reasons. For them to, uh, you know, again, he, he, provide, he wants to provide an opportunity for them for their sin to be atoned for. And He wants to be near His people as He's, being want, he's been wanting to be near them from Genesis 1. You know, making provisions so that they could be with them. Because when He is with a people, that distinguishes them from all the other people on the face of the earth. That You can see that in Exodus chapter 33, um, but he even talks about it in verses 7 to 9. Chapter 2, we'll get to in a moment. God's presence. 
Because God's presence, uh, you know, Him, he, that is the antidote to the self problem that we see they are having, just looking after themselves, their paneled houses, their, their comforts. And I love what verse 8 says. I'll read it again. He says, Go up to the hills, bring the wood, build a house. This is it, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. That is the antidote to our, self, to our self-centeredness, our individualism, is asking the question, am I bringing pleasure to God and is what I'm doing bringing glory to God? Is God happy and is God glorified? That is such a great, these are such great questions to ask because the claims of Christianity is in fact just that, that we are genuinely most satisfied. You and I will be most happy when God is most glorified. That is completely anti the culture. The culture tells us you will be most happy when you push God aside and you just do what you want, whenever you want it, however you want it. And it turns up empty every single time. And the God is saying, no, I've created you in a way that actually, I, if I take pleasure in it and if I am glorified in what you're doing, you will truly be satisfied. You will truly be happy. And friends, this is, a call, this is calling us to, uh, to examine our lives, you know, because this means all of life. Not just Sundays or you know, community group nights or corporate prayer once a month, but every second, every moment of our lives, we can ask these questions. Lord, are you, are you, are you taking pleasure in what I do? Lord, is what I'm doing bringing you glory? That's what it means to prioritize God's house. Putting Him first in everything. Putting Him first in our family. That's what discipleship looks like. It's all of our lives bringing glory to Him. It's all of our lives bringing pleasure to Him. There isn't a secular sacred divide or a compartmentalized life. Sometimes we, we can think that's, that's what Christianity is. Maybe if you, you're, you're not a Christian, you're outside looking in, you think to be a Christian is to you know, attend certain meetings and to do certain things at certain times, and then the rest of your life you just do what you like. But that is not the case. There's no secular sacred divide, you know, sacred moments on a Sunday night and then, uh, and then you can do what you like in the other sort of moments. God uh, has no uh, um, place in that. If you think that Jesus can have nothing to do uh, with the rest of your life, your work, your hobbies, your friendships, uh, I would want to challenge you. Maybe you haven't quite met Jesus yet. Maybe you haven't quite heard what he has to say about your life and how you fit into his story. This, uh, this week, I was listening to some people talk about um, some of the great thinkers uh, of our century, I think. So, uh, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis. And I, I don't know if you've read any C.S. Lewis or any Chesterton yourself. I promise you, even if you haven't read Chesterton, Chesterton I'm going to get it right. Um, there's so many of his quotes that we, we often say and, and hear that, that you might not know, even know is attributed to him. But what I love about, the, I mean, they've shaped... Uh, modern-day Christianity in, in profound ways. But like C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor, like a literate, you know, like he was teaching English, basically. A- and G.K. Chesterton was a journalist. Like they weren't theologians. They weren't, they weren't in like theology colleges. They weren't professors in that sense. They, they were in the world. And, and they had, and Jesus made his way into their lives. I just love that. And we, we read and we quote and we give their books and they're writing to other people and they come to faith because these, these people used 
Uh, well, they, they, they were, Jesus took over their whole lives. You know, the faculties where they taught, the businesses that they found themselves in. That is what God wants. He said, I want you to, um, I want um, to be happy to, to take pleasure in everything. Whether you're a mom, stay-at-home mom, or whether you are studying, whether you find yourself in school or university, Whatever job you're doing, you're a project manager somewhere, maybe you're working as a surgeon, like in all of those areas, God can take pleasure. He wants to take pleasure. And you can bring God glory. Because when that happens, you'll be happy. You won't wake up necessarily on a Monday going, here we go, the grind again. I can't wait until Sunday, you know, church, where there's a bit of singing and freedom and goosebumps, and then we get back into the grind on a Monday. No, he wants to be with you. This is, what he, this is, what, this is ultimately what um, God wants for the people that Haggai is prophesying to as well. And so they obeyed the Lord. It looks very practical. You know, in their case, they went up, they bought wood, and they came and they built a house. So they changed their trajectories. Instead of working on their paneled houses, they went up the hills to go get wood. And so they got resources. God is the one who makes wood, okay? So again, they had to rely on the sovereign hand of God. God spoke. He brought a drought to frustrate them. But then he says, go up into the hills and get those trees that I may grow. Okay, so he, he, he's, he's involved in the whole process. And then building the house had to be according to plan as well. Uh, they didn't just kind of wing it. Like God had specific instructions in terms of what these temples or how this temple needed to look. And one thing... Um, that I, I want you to notice. So maybe we can now read from verse 12. Uh, we'll read till the end of chapter uh, 1, just a couple of more verses. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. They put him first. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. One of the things that struck me was that there was a remnant. It means a smaller bit. Not everybody, just like a tail, just like a, a, a tiny group. The dregs, the leftovers. It's not the majority that were doing the work there. And, um, and when we put the Lord first, I want to say to you, don't be surprised when you find yourself a part of a minority as well. <laughs> it only takes a few obedient people. But the, some of the key words here is that it's obedient people who's got the presence of the Lord with them. God was with them. If we are a minority with God, we actually always outgun the majority. <laughs> That's just the way it is. If God is with you, even if it's one, just you, whatever you're facing, it'll always be smaller <laughs> than you plus the Lord. <laughs> God was with them. Isn't it amazing? Verse 13, I am with you is what he's declaring. And, and I love the, the grace in this statement because all they've done is they've turned. They haven't even begun, started working yet. It's not like God is saying, okay, I've got to see a bit of progress and as soon as there's some action here, like it looks kind of like a temple is on the way, I'm going to show up. But he, he starts to stir them. His presence comes upon them. That's God's grace. That's how it is. Well, even tonight when we stood here and, and we confessed, it's like, we, we haven't even walked out of here and proved that we're gonna, we've changed. 
But forgiveness immediately was ours because of what Christ has done. And, and, and God made us so powerfully. And, and that's what's happening over here. Such amazing grace that God is with them. And that's the thing about the gospel is that it's not about us working for God. It's about us working with God. That is the gospel. They didn't work for the presence of God. Actually, God in His kindness just said, you turned, you changed, you, you obeyed, here I am. It's incredible. And that's what we experience to the fullest extent in the gospel after Jesus has come. He is with them. And, uh, and He stirred up their spirit. I love that. It's a powerful metaphor to be stirred. Many of you guys drink coffee or tea and you know what it's like to stir something. You know, you put that teaspoon in. I don't know what you do. Double, double. You have to mix something in there. Maybe at Tanya's cafe, it's you know, a shot of vanilla or a bit of honey you know, with your red espresso. And then when you take that teaspoon out, you just see it's still going. It's still going. That's what happens when the Lord stirs us. It's like it's that there's momentum in our lives. He moves us in a profound way. And, and that's just God saying, I'm going to give you the resources. Not just the external resources. Go up the hills. There's some trees there. You can use that. But also the internal resources that we need. The Spirit of God moving us. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's, that's just God's grace to a people that, you know, they for 20 years have basically twiddled their thumbs. That's how long this work has stagnated, like nearly two decades. And, uh, and just an inkling of their hearts turning and the Lord rushes in with His presence and, and empowers them to do that. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. I know I'm, I'm, I'm rushing through this, but um, chapter 2, we, we won't uh, read too much of it. Let me just uh, jump through all the names that keeps being repeated here. You know now it's Joshua, it's uh, Zerubbabel, and it's Haggai. Okay, so we can, we can skip those verses. Um, and, uh, and I think it's verse 3. Let's see. This is now what the remnant is saying as they started to build. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. This is now before it was destroyed. A couple of people there can remember. How do you see it now? It is, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work again, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. midst. Fear not. So what is going on in this little section over here? Well, the temple, as they are rebuilding right now, is just not looking like the old one. The one that Solomon completed, that David kind of you know, uh, uh, bankrolled. Uh, it was incredible. And this one doesn't quite look like that. And, uh, and so often we can find ourselves uh, in a similar place. And our, our current scenario, maybe even as a church, we might look around and go, well... You know, this isn't the St. Francis Center, and we used to have our own kids' facility just across the road, and we used to meet on the Sunday mornings, and, and we can actually be very much like the people of Haggai. Kind of not too excited about the now work because we look back over our shoulders in, to the glory days, you know, pre-COVID. Remember how things were pre-COVID? Wasn't it amazing? And uh, we can miss the moment that the Lord is with us right now and resourcing us right now to build. And this is Haggai is trying to encourage them. And the Lord is saying, fear not, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't worry. And uh, after this, um, all these promises roll in about the, um, the latter days, the, what, what is coming. Okay, well, we, We'll get to that in a moment. But I do um, want to just stop for a moment and just 
remind you, City Gates, that, that God has a, a future for us as a church. And we don't want to be guilty of what the people of Haggai are guilty of. Where actually our memories are, make us more excited than our dreams. As soon as we are more excited about our memories, we've, we actually lose future hope. We lo- and I mean, you know, even these people, as they're rebuilding this temple, they don't have a clue that hundreds of years later, the fulfillment of the temple, this, this temple that doesn't look as amazing as Solomon's temple used to look, will be nothing in comparison with the temple. It's but a shadow of the substance, Jesus, that, is com- that has come. And even for us, we know that Jesus promised he will come again. That's going to be a big emphasis of our Advent season, by the way. As we, we're going to focus on not just the fact that Jesus has come 2,000 years ago, but that he promises he will come again. And so for, for them, they, God is trying to encourage them, saying, I know you're building, rebuilding this temple, but something amazing is coming. The latter days are going to be better than the former, the latter glory. And so it's the same with us. Come, let's, let's, uh, let's not be more excited about our memories, and let's trust that God's give us, going to give us a uh, future hope. He has given us our hope. Uh, as we pray together tomorrow night at the waypoints, you know, we're going to trust God to stir us in the same way by His Spirit. It carries on um, in chapter 2. Uh, I'm not going to read that section. I'm going to make that an emphasis. But um, verse 10 to 19, he's basically saying, make sure that you do it with the right heart. You know, he's saying if you do it with the wrong, wrong motives, it's kind of like we say to our kids, you know, obey straight away and with a good attitude. Because when our children obey us with a bad attitude, it equals disobedience. Okay? It's like it has to be all of the above. Okay? And, uh, and God is really just saying, you know, he's using a couple of meta- metaphors like if an unclean thing touches a holy thing, does, it make, uh, does the holy thing make it the unclean thing holy? No. Actually, the unclean thing makes the holy thing unclean. You know, he uses that imagery and he's saying it's the same when you build the temple and you actually your heart hasn't changed. You know, all of this work is, it make, doesn't, doesn't really make a difference because the motive behind it isn't great. Okay, so, um, but let's, uh, let's, let's just read a few verses more at uh, Chapter 2, verse 6. Read this along with me, if you can. For thus says the Lord of hosts. Joking. For thus says the Lord of hosts. <laughs> Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. I mean, this is, uh, uh, you know, looking ahead. I, th- I think of, uh, of the coming of Christ, you know, um, where all nations will come in. Again, it's, it's quite amazing. This remnant is rebuilding this temple. And I just even think of the nation of Israel, like in God's sovereign you know, plan, he, he picks this tiny nation to, to do things. Um, and and he always chooses the remnant and, and the broken um, to do phenomenal things. And, uh, and, he, and he, we even think of Jesus, you know. This, uh, this carpenter in the small town, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Um, and, uh, but but the, the glory that, that he, he will um, bring through that, he's trying to encourage them. He's like, verse 9, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. I think it's a little tip to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that is coming. And so he stirs them up. Let's, uh, let's read uh, the last couple of verses here that has to do with the shaking. Again, we, we read about the shaking that will take place. And I believe when Jesus arrived on the scene, I mean, it, it shook history. Today, we're still meeting here. 
and the coming of Christ just sent this ripple through planet Earth, sent this ripple through the ages. See, we stand, you know, he, he has sh- shook the world um, through his coming. And, uh, and, and God often shakes us in our lives. You know, he's busy shaking the people of Haggai as he's as he, as he trying to get them out of their apathy. And there's a few clues in, in the book of Haggai as to how God does the shaking. I won't get into them, but um, maybe one uh, I will speak of is the trials um, that, that God takes us through. You know, the difficulties. He, he brought some trials upon them in his sovereign hand for them to see that uh, they have... Um, stop prioritizing the Lord. And so trials is a way that God can often shake us. And shaking is good in our lives because when we are shaken, we see what is solid and what is not. We actually see if we are building upon a strong foundation. And so God is shaking the people of Haggai and he's promising that a shaking will come. And trials is one of the ways that he shakes us. Okay, Time is one of the ways that he shakes us where God just takes his time. Not be, you know, God is in charge of times. So he doesn't even take his time. It just seems like that to us. God's just living his life, okay? He's just accomplishing his will, okay? He's not deciding to slow down. He just, he rolls how he rolls. It seems to us as if God is taking his time. And it shakes us. It, it makes us uncomfortable. It shows us maybe we, we, we depend less upon God and more on timelines and our own desires. And so the trials and the time... Uh, and, our, and our own efforts, the toils, even as we see here in uh, the book of Haggai. All of that to, uh, to wake us up to the truth that he needs to be prioritized. And we need to build our lives upon him. That's where security will be. Security uh, comes from him, from his hand. And how can the latter days be better than the former days. As they are rebuilding this temple, you know, they might, they might think, oh, I, I don't know how this is going to pan out. This is nothing like what it was before. Well, I think the answer, again, we are on the other side, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years later, the arrival of Jesus. I think the answer is, the latter can be better than the former because a person is better than a place, than a palace. A person is better than a pla- palace. A person is better than this building. You think about... Elvis's home and Nelson Mandela's home. I've never been to Elvis's home, but you've been to Nelson Mandela's one residence. I mean, he had a few in Johannesburg. But those homes are only important because of the people that lived there. And it's the same with the temple. You know, the temple is actually only profoundly important because of the presence of God that's there. And when Jesus came, he is Emmanuel, God with us. That is the better of the latter days. And you know, Jesus himself said to his disciples, it is better that I go, that I am ascended to the Father because I'm going to send the Spirit. So in many ways, he's saying the latter days will be greater than the former days. I've walked with my disciples for three years. I was here, but when I go to the Father, me and the Father will send you the Spirit. And now my glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That is profound. That is this, that's how good God is. Let's not get stuck in the when we days. In the like, remember how it used to be? You know, 20 years ago, oh, that was like a party for Christianity, but now it sucks. No, let's look ahead. Because God always promises better days ahead than what, what is behind us. Because he's at work. He's at work. And he wants to shake us in a, in a way that we would recognize and see that. 
I mean, it's amazing that at the end, he really speaks to Zerubbabel, the king. He's actually in the line of David, and through his line, ultimately, Jesus comes onto the scene. And so Zerubbabel is very much a part of the king coming through and the latter glory days. He, he, he will usher that in. You can read that at the last, last couple of verses from verse 20 on right till the end. It ends off by, he's saying, I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Um, verse 23 says, um, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you a signet ring. I love that. I will take you and I will make you. And this is the, not just the word to Zerubbabel, but I think he's saying that to the nation of Israel, you know, this remnant, this, this obscure group of people. He said, I will take you and I will make you. And when we prioritize the Lord and we put ourselves into his hand, prioritize his, you know, seek his kingdom first, his promise to you and me is that he will take us and he will make us into something that will bring him, give him pleasure and bring him glory. So can we be like Zerubbabel? Can we be like this remnant where we say, yes, Lord, actually my panel houses, my desires, the things I want, they secondary. You are primary. The things I'm concerned about and worried about that can take over my life, I'm going to lay it aside. I'm going to seek you and your kingdom first. And it's going to be about what brings you pleasure and what brings you glory. And then you promise that you will take me and you will make me. And that through me, you will usher in glory, glorious, more glorious days than before. That actually my future is brighter and more grander than my, my past. This is what he wants to do in us. And I love how uh, you know, this book will tie in to our Advent series ultimately. You know, we've got two left. We've got Zechariah and then Malachi. Because um, then we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kick off with the arrival of Jesus, the fulfillment of all these promises, so many promises that has come, that has come through this, this, uh, this series. Emmanuel, God physically present with his people, establishing his kingdom. Jesus was, was so different to these, these people in Haggai. He never got sidetracked on his mission, even though he was opposed. Um, he, uh, he obeyed the Father 100%. He had zeal for God's house. It consumed him. He put, put God's house for, uh, first. And then ultimately, even though that temple you know, was destroyed once, he said to the people around there that if you destroy this temple, three days I will raise it up. And he was talking about himself. He was claiming that I am the fulfillment. This is just a shadow. I'm the real thing. I am the temple. This is now where you meet God. And like I said, after his death and resurrection and ascension, he has now made us his temple. Isn't that amazing? He came as a fulfillment of the temple. And when he ascended, he poured out his spirit. And now this presence of God is in you and me when we are Christians. And we are the body of Christ. We are the church. We are the new temple made up of living stones. And so in the beginning, twice, verse 5 and in verse 7, God said, consider your ways. And, uh, and I want to leave that with us tonight. Let's consider our ways. Have we grown apathetic like the people of Haggai? Have we uh, put God second and not first? Have we stopped giving pleasure to God and asking if we, our lives are bringing glory to Him? Have we compartmentalized our lives thinking that there's only a few moments in our week where that's important and the rest of the time I just live and do what I like? But no, let's not be like that. God chased after us in his son Jesus to fix that. Because Jesus wasn't just chastened, he was punished in our place 
for our apathy, for our sin, for our complacency. He lived a perfect life, but then he paid the penalty for our imperfect lives. And in doing so, he did the work to bring us to God. So now we can work with God. We don't have to work for God's approval. Like he did all the work for us. It's such good news. And he gives his spirit to us as a gift. You don't earn it. Because he earned it. He did all the work. Now you and I are empowered. We are given the internal and the external resources to work with God. In other words, his presence is with you and me in whatever situation you find yourself in. You are not alone. If the temple was a place where God took pleasure in their sacrifices and where his glory dwelt among his people, then this is my final word to you. Jesus was that final pleasing sacrifice. That's why he could cry out, it is finished. It was the final pleasing sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus is the full glory of God. Full glory. Like he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In, in him, the, the Father's glory dwelt bodily. And he is here tonight to help us in all of the ways that we see we fall short with Haggai as our mirror, or the book of Haggai and the people of Haggai as our mirror. Let me pray for you. Lord, I ask that you would fall upon us by your spirit now and stir us like you did the people of Haggai. We need your Holy Spirit to stir us, to fill us, and give us the internal and the external resources to live our lives the way that you called them to, which is to bring pleasure and glory to you. Because then we truly put you first and you are so kind you promise that when we put your kingdom first and seek your kingdom first and prioritize you your glory your house your ways your will that the things we find ourselves so concerned about you will take care of them we don't want to live in the consequences of putting you second and being so anxious about our lives anxious about what we will eat what we will drink how we will live how we will survive how we will be happy and we are crushed by anxiety and worry and concern because we're not trusting our good Father. Lord, we want to turn away from that. Turn to you and receive your Spirit. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came to, to make a way for us to be empowered. Made a way for us, for us to be with you and joining you in your work. That we do not have to earn any of the stuff. We don't work for your love and your approval. You have done all the work. We are now working with you. And we are advancing your kingdom. We want to see a time where the latter days are far more glorious than the former days. And we want to be the tools in your hands. We want you to use us to accomplish that, to advance your kingdom, to show the world what, it like, what it's like to live with God at the center, with God first in our lives. We want to be people who spread the good news like that. We want to be people that put you first. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.